Some of the most fun and thrilling moments in pop music come when a singer launches way up into their head voice. It's a vulnerable, risky move that immediately intensifies the song, making it sound more intimate. You can have an artist who you're kind of questioning, is this a man singing or a woman singing? I think there is a lot of influence that happens across vocalists, regardless of their gender. That was Estelle Caswell, senior producer at Vox and host of the video series Earworm. On this episode, Estelle and I will talk about the many historical waves of falsetto in popular music and how the falsetto voice can be an especially useful tool when it comes to communicating queer desire and interiority. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. Generally speaking, human beings have two different voices. The modal voice, or chest voice, is the one I'm using to speak to you right now. It's also probably the one you use to speak most of the time unless you're conveying excitement or emphasizing something, in which case you might take advantage of the other voice your body can produce, the head voice, or falsetto. The Italian term falsetto derives from the operatic tradition and literally means little false voice. This higher register vibrates the very edges of your vocal cords. If you use it to sing, you'll likely get a breathier tone than your modal voice, unless you're a practiced countertenor or soprano. That breathiness, the sense that you need to strain past your quote-unquote normal range, is part of why falsetto contains the word false. There's also a good amount of gender at play here. To sing in what's generally considered a female range, many men have to use their falsetto. Breaking away from their comfortable range into a feminized octave takes audible strain. This strain has some similarities to drag, a performance where, classically speaking, a man puts visible effort toward doing something that's supposed to come naturally to a woman. In certain historical contexts, high-voiced men have been read as an affront to gender systems, examples of defective maleness closer to women than real men. As Anne Carson points out in her essay The Gender of Sound, in Greek Antiquity, Eunuchs, sexually submissive men, and women were all considered to have annoyingly high voices. High vocal pitch goes together with talkativeness to characterize a person who is deviant from or deficient in the masculine ideal of self-control, Carson wrote. Aristotle even postulated that the vocal cords were connected directly to the testicles, an early working theory for the effects of testosterone on the thickness of the vocal cords. Despite the danger it carries to the construct of masculinity, Male falsetto has had a reliable presence throughout the history of American popular music. Certain African folk music traditions make use of falsetto. When people were abducted from Africa and enslaved in the United States, falsetto singing came with them. It made its way into black American spirituals and folk songs, and then the blues and gospel, all of which make use of a sudden switch between chest voice and head voice for emphasis, and all of which laid the foundation for rock and roll and, by extension, the vast majority of American popular music. In 1955, the rock and roll trailblazer Little Richard evolved the rock falsetto even further, 
punctuating his smash hit Tutti Frutti with iconic falsetto whoops. Tutti Frutti's lyrics originally made explicit reference to gay sex, a healthy reminder about the importance of using lube, and were only cleaned up so Richard could record and sell the song in the relatively conservative post-war market. But the excitement of that whoop and odds deviancy stayed behind, tracing the outline of what couldn't be said on record. Little Richard taught the Beatles that whooping vocal technique in the 60s, as the Liverpool band was making their early records. Falsetto became an iconic rock gesture. It also carried through in soul and R&B, where artists like Smokey Robinson, Curtis Mayfield, and Al Green used it to convey transcendental desire through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. If falsetto's use in gospel pointed to a kind of ascension into God's love, a splitting apart of the self into an overflow of the spirit, it traced something similar in secular music. It's a fragile, open sound that doesn't speak to the singer's power so much as their vulnerability. With me to, to talk through the history of the falsetto in pop music is Estelle Caswell, who is a senior producer at Vox.com. And Estelle put together this really great video about history of falsetto and popular music over the past 50 years or so for the series Earworm at Vox. And Estelle, you have this one line in the video where you, you describe falsetto as like a year-long obsession while you were working <laughs> through this kind of quantitative study of how falsetto has moved through pop music. I'm super curious, like when did this obsession start? Like what triggered it? What, what kind <laughs> of caught your ear about this vocal technique? I am an unabashed lover of slow jams. And I, especially like 70s and 80s and 90s slow jams, um, just that era is like so awesome, both musically, instrumentation wise, there's a lot of things that change. But one thing that I think I always just realized the reason I love certain slow jams is the falsetto moment, like the kind of climax of the slow jam that just feels like super satisfying. And I think what really interested me about that as I started thinking about why is a falsetto so sexy? <laughs> I was just like, what? Like, why? I would think it would be the opposite, like a deep voice or something, like a Barry White type of voice would be more prominent in that context. That was just what was interesting to me. I started sort of compiling a list of all of my favorite slow jams, filtering out the songs that I felt really like exemplified the genre. And almost without fail, there were just like clear classics that had these incredible falsetto moments. So I figured, you know, let's look at every genre and see if there's like kind of the same correlation or do other genres sort of rely on a falsetto just as much or is this kind of like a unique thing? Can you give me like a favorite example <laughs> oh, yeah. of like the falsetto break within a slow jam? Yeah. So there's this song by Lenny Williams. It's a song that is very long. It is a roller coaster ride of emotions. It starts off very soft and sweet. And then it starts to get like really desperate. It just feels like this like longing that exists in the song is like so clear and prominent. There's a moment in the middle of the song where he just starts talking. You know, the moment in every slow jam where they're like, and now I said to this, to the lady, I love you. <laughs> and then it like goes into this like climactic moment, but it's just so fun to listen to. You mentioned tracking the falsetto outside of the the slow jam genre, kind of early in your research. What did you find when you chased this register down? Like, did you find that it was being used for similar 
emotional impact across genres or was, mm-hmm. were there differences in, in different settings as to like how it was kind of playing out against the rest of the song? I think this was probably the most exciting thing to sort of see charted is that every decade, every era of music, every genre of music uses the falsetto in slightly different ways. Like the Beach Boys, for instance, they're kind of this soft-spoken surf rock group. They were just all about harmonizing. And so the falsetto just like played a huge role in their sound. Then there's the Frankie Valley vocal group, which was way more influenced by like rock and roll and the quartet mentality of singing that arose in the 50s and 60s. There's like gimmicky falsettos for sure. There's this song called I Like Peanut Butter by the, this band called The New Beats. And I only discovered them through like charting all of this music. It felt like a novelty song in some way. And the falsetto kind of felt like it created this novel element to the song. The thing that I realized the most is that across every decade, the common foundational element of the falsetto that seemed to cross times and genres and all the way up to pop music today, you know, the people that influenced Justin Timberlake and The Weeknd and Charlie Puth and Sam Smith, you could almost draw a direct connection from them to the sort of roots of gospel and blues and Black American music in general. So soul music in the 1960s and then smooth R&B in the 1970s. It's just like the overwhelming, powerful force of music that made the falsetto not just musically like relevant across multiple genres, it influenced so many generations of singers. And also I think you can hear the effect of the falsetto more through artists like Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield, Eddie Kendricks, bands like the Ohio Players and the Gap Band, Earth, Wind & Fire, like all of those groups had huge success and influence and they all use a falsetto in such a powerful way. And so I think, yeah, you can look at the new beats, (laughs) the novelty songs of the 1960s, but I don't think they had the same sort of lasting power as artists like, yeah, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, through time. As you were tracking the the abundance of falsetto through the decades, you kind of mm-hmm. point out two different peaks um, in its popularity, yeah. like one in the 70s and one in the 80s. Yeah. Why do you think it peaked when it did? Well, I think that kind of turns a question to like, what is a falsetto in our heads? Because I think I quickly realized that Okay, well, one, a falsetto is a very technical term that is very rooted in the world of opera and classical music training. So in that world, people will define it a very specific way. And artists like Marvin Gaye definitely employed that technical element of a falsetto. But then you have like songs where the singer is just singing really high. It's a much more raw or like clear dynamic sound than like a breathy falsetto that we might talk about. And in my mind, I'm like, well, they're effectively, they're doing the same thing. They're going high, really high, almost unnaturally high. Whether or not they flipped to their head voice or not, I think musically and pop music, at least, they f- I feel like they're kind of doing the same thing. In that case, like the technical falsetto, <laughs> 70s, The high vocal register peaked in the 80s because a lot of heavy metal and hard rock, you know, you have like 
artists like Led Zeppelin and Guns N' Roses and ACDC, they're like screaming high. And that's like not a falsetto. It's a high vocal register. Almost every genre of music was carrying that high voice in the 80s versus just soul musicians in the 1970s. So yeah, that's kind of how it breaks down. The peak of the technical falsetto is like the Bee Gees era of 1970s disco and R&B. The highest voices across all the charts and the Billboard Hot 100 across multiple genres is really in the late 80s when heavy metal and hard rock, New Jack Swing, Michael Jackson and Prince pretty much carried half the 80s in that respect. In the late 70s and 80s, falsetto accompanied the proliferation of synthesizers in popular music. Those vocal flights rose over the tinny treble and otherworldly bass of new machines, making a perfect ally to their unprecedented sounds. What could be better to accompany a false instrument than a false voice? Many of the artists that defined the synth-pop era with sweeping falsetto were also queer, with sexualities perceived as unnatural in the dominant order. Launching into their head voices gave them the opportunity to break away from worldly concerns, but it also opened an opportunity for them to enjoy the quote-unquote fake side of their vocality, to play in artifice rather than to emulate some ideal of authenticity. So you mentioned Prince and, and Michael Jackson, and I'm, I'm wondering if you see a, a kind of a difference in the way that those two artists are are using falsetto because, you know, Michael Jackson was obviously a, a child star. You know, mm-hmm. his voice was first heard when he was really, really young. And so mm-hmm. he was kind of introduced to the world and like became a celebrity, like while his voice was still in that like high, high kids mm-hmm. register. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, had to navigate adulthood um, mm-hmm. and kind of learn to sing in this new way. And do you see kind of like a callback to that early phase of his career in the way he, he would sing in adulthood? I think his voice is incredibly unique, but it's not unsurprising given the era. A lot of artists within the sort of pop New Jack Swing era were singing really high in that same way. Michael Jackson was the king of pop. So we kind of like project a lot more onto him and in a lot of cases, rightly so. But I think that, you know, if you look at somebody like Babyface during that era or other artists who were singing just as high, maybe they were copying him. I, I don't know. I do think that like his style was certainly cultivated by some really incredible producers like Quincy Jones, and they knew he could pull off a really unique sound. They like really leaned into that. It's hard to say because his songs make so much sense and they work so well that I couldn't imagine that being such a like premeditated thing. It just seems so natural to me, I guess. With vocal choices in general, like Mm -hmm. so much of it can be like unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Even when you like write a song, you don't necessarily know how it's going to come out Mm -hmm. when you're like in the studio and like working Mm -hmm. with a producer who might push you in different directions Mm -hmm. and not because there's any explicit logic behind it. It's just like, that sounded great. Like do that Mm -hmm. more kind of thing. Yeah. And one, actually one way to think about this is like the Bee Gees, very premeditated in the 19th. I mean, there is like very clear moment that is pretty well documented where they tried something out because it was working for a lot of other artists. And then that became their thing. But the music before they did that was not high and their speaking voices weren't high. So that's kind of another interesting thing. Whereas, yeah, Michael Jackson, even Marvin Gaye, like if you listen to them talk, 
it makes sense that they sing high and they are good in that range. It would be weird to hear a deep, gravely Frank Sinatra talk really, really low and then just like sing really high. Yeah. Although I think like Prince had some of that a little bit. I think that was much more performative for sure. He really created a persona and a sound that felt very, it was incredibly smart and it helped him stand out. Just his his vision for what Prince was, was much more almost like an Arturist point of view. And I think his voice, though, definitely fit into the world that he was in, in the 80s. I love Prince as an example of a falsettist because it's there like right from the beginning and like the mm-hmm. first moments of his first album, he's just way mm-hmm. up in the sky. I always heard his voice as an attempt at merging with the people he was like singing about, you know, like mm-hmm. his, his vision of like erotic desire wasn't as much based on difference. The way I hear it, it wasn't mm-hmm. much, so much as like, I'm a man and I'm like over here and like the mm-hmm. person I'm like chasing is like over there and like, she's a woman and that's different from mm-hmm. what I am. It's more just like, I want to basically become the same being. And like yes. one way of doing that is, is like pitching my voice, like super, super high, like ethereally high, as you said, I think you mentioned mm-hmm. like impossibly or like unnaturally mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I, I, it's funny that like those words keep like coming up when we talk about falsetto, which is like ancient, but it still sounds mm-hmm. like, like it's in the, it's in the word. It's like false or like not real. It not just musically works, but in the context of somebody singing or their career, it means so much more depending on who the audience is, who the singer is. In the case of like, you know, your traditional slow jam, there's no doubt that this is for a straight guy singing to a straight woman. And after like a nighttime slow jam, dinner by candlelight moment, that was like a thing. For a man to risk sounding like a woman or sounding gay and professing his love for a woman implied that he didn't mind losing his grip on stable gender dynamics, so long as the intensity of his feeling got across. Using that falsetto is a gender-breaking gesture. That's likely why it's central to the music of so many queer artists like the synth-pop cult favorite Klaus Nomi and the disco icon Sylvester, whose ethereal voice matched his androgynous and otherworldly stage presence. On Sylvester's 1978 hit disco single, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, the singer uses the very top edge of his falsetto to sing out the joy and pleasure of gay sexuality, something that is supposed to be covert, forbidden, quiet, but rings out openly on the arc of Sylvester's similarly taboo falsetto sweeps. In his 1993 book, The Queen's Throat, the queer poet and theorist Wayne Kostenbaum notes that the falsetto is part of the history of effeminacy, that, like homosexuality, it is an act deemed unnatural. In the late 70s and 80s, more musical artists found space to perform outside the closet, not hiding their queerness, but singing it out. Their use of falsetto not as a strategically deployed emphatic gesture, but as a baseline voice, accompanied overt visual expressions of queerness like dramatic makeup and glittering sequined outfits. Gay artists also used that gender-breaking voice to tell stories of characters ditching social norms. Bronski Beat's 1984 synth-pop hit Small Town Boy traces the narrative of a gay teenager running away from his repressive hometown, not knowing what awaits him out there in the world, but sensing that it has to be better than what he's living with. Singer Jimmy Somerville's falsetto reaches toward that unknown horizon. It quavers with the danger and thrill of leaving behind everything you know in order to become yourself. 
to unfurl outside the heterosexual nuclear family structure that's boxing you in. The fact that a falsetto in that context might mean something different to the audience than Sylvester singing in a falsetto or Bronsky beat singing in a falsetto, where the world and the audience and the singer were not straight. (laughs) And it wasn't necessarily meant to be sexy. It was just part of their own perspective or aesthetic or style. I think falsetto can be deployed to so many different ends. Mm -hmm. To kind of go back to Michael Jackson, like there are so many of his songs where he sings in a panicked falsetto. Mm -hmm. Like there's like Smooth Criminal where he's almost like assuming the character of this this woman who's Mm -hmm. being pursued by an attacker Mm -hmm. or whatever and and like Thriller and I mean even like Billie Jean even though it's kind of Mm -hmm. like a a romantic dynamic there's like a lot of Mm -hmm. anxiety and uncertainty and everything there. So a lot of like fear in the the falsetto but you know it's it's also like historically kind of like a transcendent like erotic gesture. I want to tap back to what you said about Jimmy Somerville, Bronsky Beat, and, and Sylvester. What what kinds of musical opportunities do you think the falsetto might have opened for, for queer artists in particular? I think Sylvester is really interesting because Sylvester started in a gospel background. In San Francisco, was a part of a church choir, had a pretty traditional vocal upbringing, and learned through that tradition. I mean, it's the same case for a lot of soul artists coming from gospel and blues. But the fact that that sound then sort of also came at the same time as disco, which originated in the LGBTQ community. Sylvester was like, at the time, right when synthesizers and I believe the producer with a lot of Sylvester's work was like Patrick Crowley, who had these like incredible albums that like songs like Minergy, super, super cool and fun to listen to. And I think this is like, this is great example of how gospel, but also like how queer artists were able to, at that time, like create almost like a church-like atmosphere on dance floors through their music that like, it didn't have to feel traditional and conservative. It could feel really freeing and liberating in that way. It's kind of almost like an example of certain things coming full circle, right? Because a lot of like disco came out of, you know, the creative playing of record mm-hmm. that came out of the gospel tradition. Exactly. In, in some way originally. And then to kind of like take the, the gospel choir and like loop it back in mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, it's a really natural progression, but it also for me like feels like these artists were reclaiming and sort of evolving their own upbringing in a way that fit them personally and that made them feel comfortable and created a safe space for a lot of people who might at the time have just didn't have a home in the gospel church, but they wanted, they still wanted that feeling or that musical expression sort of come through. Um, So yeah, there's a, there's so many examples of, of songs like that during that era, but Sylvester absolutely embodies that in every way. It's like both both gospel and, and dance music have that reciprocal loop mm-hmm. where, you know, there's there's the performer and then there's the audience, but there's not like a hard line between them. It's not like the performer is kind of directing what the audience does. It's like this mutual kind of mm-hmm. feedback loop where 
you know, you call out to the audience, like respond to what you're doing and like influence what you're doing. And you get to falsetto almost like as part of that feedback where it's just, there's just so mm-hmm. much energy, like kind of building up among everybody that it just, you know, you get all the way up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. In the 21st century, falsetto continues to serve as a reliable tool for artists to lend a sense of thrill to their voices. As Estelle points out in her earworm video on falsetto, the past 20 years have seen an abundance of falsetto voices on the pop charts. From The Weeknd, Bruno Mars, and Childish Gambino, to Coldplay, Imagine Dragons, Bon Iver, and 21 Pilots, falsetto dives in between and among different genres. No matter what you're singing, it's a ready way to add dimension and excitement to the course of your voice and play with listener expectations. I think it's also worth thinking about the ways women artists have been using their head voices over the past decade or so. Though not falsetto in the traditional sense, since a high female voice isn't thought to be a false one, the female head voice makes use of the same set of muscles, the same switch and registers. Singers like Solange and FKA Twigs use it to communicate a sense of intimacy and hushed interiority. It's an electric shift into a heightened state of being, an immediate way to up the stakes of a song. So in the video, the earworm video on falsetto, you call out Justin Timberlake's Cry Me a River, which is like a really great example of like post-millennial falsetto, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of right after the 90s ended. It was like one of his first big solo singles. Um, And I think I find this song really fascinating because you have these like really memorable ad libs at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's kind of like just singing the words cry me, um, except it's not actually him singing. One of the the background singers in that session was Marsha Ambrosius, who's mm-hmm. has this like incredible like timbral closeness to him where it's like it's like believable that mm-hmm. you know people thought that that those vocals were his. I'm curious like what your thoughts are on that kind of like hybridization or like confusion of gender that falsetto mm-hmm. can create. Like what kind of effect does does that have this idea that like you can't necessarily tell if it's a man or a woman singing in in this particular instance how how does that like reflect on on the use of falsetto as a whole I kind of keep going back to like who is the audience or who are the fans that are listening to this and who is this for basically because I, I think that use can it can really change quite a lot you can have an artist who you're kind of questioning, is this a man singing or a woman singing? One great example of that is this artist, Jimmy Scott. The first time I listened, I I literally didn't think it was a man. <laughs> like, I really didn't. I thought a lot of the artists that were influenced by him were like Billie Holiday and um, like female jazz singers, which I think is really interesting. And then you have female artists who have really deep voices. I mean, going back to the gospel tradition, like Marianne Williams, who influenced Little Richard and Mick Jagger. There, I think there is a lot of influence that happens across vocalists, regardless of their gender, that is like so cool because it's an instrument. It's like, how good are they at their instrument? <laughs> what is the really interesting thing that captivates you about their sound that you can kind of 
be influenced by or take from or kind of recreate in your own music when like digital production sort of came into the fore, like I think we, our ears got a lot more used to higher pitches like auto-tune sampling, pitching up samples and things like that. I at least, and I kind of get the sense from a lot of people that I talk to, we kind of disassociate who is singing with just the sound that they're creating and how that kind of creates this musical and exciting and dynamic song. And so a pitched up vocal at the end of a song is just like just a really great musical technique to make the song more interesting or exciting. The Sam Smith song that came out, I think like last year or the year before, where they're actually singing very low most of the time. The natural voice is like much lower than I would have expected. But then there's these moments of like, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like really high and it's like a dance track. So there's like these kind of like pitched up samples that happen in the climactic moments of the song. And I'm just like, this is so fun. Sam Smith put out a cover of Donna Summer's I Feel Love a couple of years ago. Too. Oh, really? I had like mixed feelings about it for mm-hmm. years. It was like for like a Target ad or whatever. So I was just oh, like, great. Yeah. Like, that's, that's about where we are right now. But yeah. I thought I thought there was something powerful about because they sing it all in falsetto, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, Donna Summer does does too. She sings that song largely in, in her head voice. But like something about the, the strain, it's like a little bit difficult for Sam yeah. Smith to like sing it in that register. Something about that felt like really exciting to me. Um, and especially for like a non-binary person mm-hmm. um, to to like really take that song, this like classic like gay disco mm-hmm. anthem and like you know, make it make it their own and like really push themselves to like yes. get out those notes. That felt really powerful. There's so many incredible covers of that era that are happening today with younger artists that really signify how important those songs were to people at the time and how they really helped not just move music forward. I Feel Love was like an incredibly influential song just on its own, but also how all of the communities that then had an anthem that was theirs is it's really cool to hear those songs kind of come back and be reinterpreted and covered by artists who musically and just personally probably feel really connected to them. Do you think that the construction of the falsetto is like an impossible voice or a fake voice is like connected to that, to that like appeal to people who maybe like, feel impossible within like a current paradigm absolutely we can always come to expect hearing a falsetto in a song because it's incredibly musically successful which i think gives a lot more opportunity to um, musicians and artists who can play with that in a more interesting or creative way than perhaps your traditional pop artist charlie puth might be coming from this in a way is like just loves new jack swing loves r&v great But Sam Smith might be coming to it from a different perspective. And the fact that one technique can kind of like live in all of these worlds for all different types of artists, um, I think is a really cool thing. It's like the most versatile tool that can have all of these layers of meaning in such a cool way. I guess just to like wrap up, what are some of 
your your favorite or some of the most striking kind of contemporary uses of falsetto? Are there any like recent songs that have really stood out for you? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I was really excited to hear it, and I it ended up being that Childish Cambino's Redbone is not really actually falsetto. It's just sung really high. <laughs> um, I think I think you can get like mixed register even. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that was really exciting to hear. Um, this is a really popular song and it sounded strange compared to all of the songs that were number one songs at the time or like on the charts, but it was clearly like a, just a really incredible callback to that seventies era of funk that I personally really love and seeing a, an artist today who's super creative do it was very exciting to me. I don't know if you've like ever listened to, um, Swamp Dog. Swamp Dog is a kind of a cult musical figure that has had a very long career but still releasing music and he, he did an album with Bonnie Vare that was like mostly an auto-tune it, but it was like slow jams so of course I liked it that album was really fun to listen to um, I think it was called Love Loss and Auto-Tune or something like that and the songs that he sang on that album I think were really fun there's a song called Lonely that's really good I'm I'm a fan of pop music, so I love Charlie Puth, honestly. <laughs> the weekend I think has some really great moments. Yeah. I, I mean it's like asking somebody what their favorite song is. It's like yeah, all, all, all of the songs that I listened to yesterday, because those were the only ones I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I listen I listen to so much music. It's crazy. <laughs> well, thank you, Estelle, so much for joining me today and, and talking through uh, your expertise of falsetto. I'm really glad that we were able to chat. Of course. I'm excited to be here. Throughout recording history, falsetto has produced a thrill in the ear that's hard to replicate. The sound of a person switching vocal muscles and reaching for a higher, more delicate, more elusive voice opens up a kind of intimacy that makes perfect sense in the work of queer artists especially. Falsetto is like telling a secret that opens up the world. In her book, The Meaning of Soul, Emily J. Lordy writes, quote, the soul falsetto signals an expansion of psychic space. The falsetto allows artists to ask how high it is possible to go, how vulnerable it is permissible to be, how sexy, how extravagant, how cool and effervescent, and to emphasize the importance of cultivating and nourishing one's own interior, end quote. The technique brings the inside out, yet draws the listener in. To get a good sense of how falsetto moves through different throats, I'd recommend you listen to three different versions of the same song. It's called At Your Best, You Are Love, originally recorded by the Isley Brothers in 1976, then covered by Aaliyah in 1994, and then covered again by Frank Ocean in 2016. Ocean's version contains a current of astonishing intimacy that almost makes you forget you're hearing a recording. It dissolves the time elapsed and space traversed between the studio session and the moment you hit play. The distance between bodies, for a moment, rinses away. So does their supposedly immutable difference. Inside the enclosure of the song, everything turns liquid and light. There's no sense of how men are supposed to sound or how women are supposed to sound. There's just voice, straining and then soaring, taking flight. What can that transformation unlock inside the body and beyond it? Where can the voice go once it's unburdened? 
Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. Serious XM Podcasts.